0: Section 6. Part 2 of Section 2 of the Introduction to the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone, Book 1. Introduction SECTION 2, PART 2 The only true and natural foundations of society are the wants and the fears of individuals. Not that we can believe, with some theoretical writers, that there ever was a time when there was no such thing as society, and that, from the impulse of reason, and through a sense of their wants and weaknesses, individuals met together in a large plane entered into an original contract, and chose the tallest man present to be their governor. This notion of a naturally existing unconnected state of nature is too wild to be seriously admitted. And besides, it is plainly contradictory to the revealed accounts of the primitive origin of mankind, and the preservation two thousand years afterwards, both which were effected by the means of single families These formed the first society, among themselves, which every day extended its limits, and when it grew too large to subsist with convenience in that pastoral state, wherein the patriarchs appear to have lived, it necessarily subdivided itself by various migrations into more. Afterwards, as agriculture increased, which employs and can maintain a much greater number of hands migrations became less frequent, and various tribes, which had formerly separated, reunited again, sometimes by compulsion and conquest, sometimes by accident, and sometimes perhaps by compact. But though society had not its formal beginning from any convention of individuals, actuated by their wants and their fears, yet it is the sense of their weakness and imperfection, that keeps mankind together, that demonstrates the necessity of this union, and that therefore is the solid and natural foundation, as well as the cement of society. And this is what we mean by the original contract of society, which, though perhaps in no instance it has ever been formally expressed, at the first institution of a state, yet in nature and reason must always be understood and implied, in the very act of associating together, namely, that the whole should protect all its parts, and that every part should pay obedience to the will of the whole, or, in other words, that the community should guard the rights of each individual member, and that in return for this protection, each individual should submit to the laws of the community. Without which submission, of all it was impossible that protection could be certainly extended to any. For when society is once formed, government results, of course, as necessary to preserve and to keep that society in order, unless some superior were constituted, whose commands and decisions all members are bound to obey, they would still remain as in a state of nature, without any judge upon earth to define their several rights and redress their several wrongs. But as all the members of society are naturally equal, it may be asked in whose hands are the reins of government to be entrusted. To this the general answer is easy but the application of it to particular cases has occasioned one half of those mischiefs which are apt to proceed from misguided political zeal. In general, all mankind will agree that government should be reposed in such persons in whom those qualities are most likely to be found, the perfection of which are among the attributes of him who is emphatically styled the Supreme Being, the three grand requisites, I mean, of wisdom, of goodness, and of power. Wisdom, to discern the real interest of the community. Goodness, to endeavor always to pursue that real interest. And strength, or power, to carry this knowledge and intention into action. These are the natural foundations of sovereignty and these are the requisites that ought to be found in every well-constituted frame of government. How the several forms of government we now see in the world at first actually began is a matter of great uncertainty, and has occasioned infinite disputes. It is not my business or intention to enter into any of them. However they began, or by what right soever they subsist, there is and must be in all of them a supreme, irresistible, absolute, uncontrolled authority in which the jus summi imperi, or the rights of sovereignty, reside. And this authority is placed in those hands wherein, according to the opinion of the founders of such respective states, either expressly given or collected from their tacit approbation, the qualities requisite for supremacy, wisdom, goodness, and power, are the most likely to be found. The political writers of antiquity will not allow more than three regular forms of government. The first, when the sovereign power is lodged in an aggregate assembly consisting of all the members of a community, which is called a democracy. The second, when it is lodged in a council, composed of select members, and then it is styled an aristocracy. The last, when it is entrusted in the hands of a single person, then it takes the name of a monarchy. All other species of government, they say, are either corruptions of, or reducible to, these three. By the sovereign power, as was before observed, is meant the making of laws. For wherever that power resides, all others must conform to, and be directed by it, whatever appearance the outward form and administration of the government may put on. For it is at any time, in the option of the legislature, to alter that form and administration by a new edict or rule, and to put the execution of the laws into whatever hands it pleases. And all the other powers of the state must obey the legislative power in the execution of their several functions, or else the Constitution is at an end. In a democracy, where the right of making laws resides in the people at large, public virtue, or goodness of intention, is more likely to be found than either of the other qualities of government. Popular assemblies are frequently foolish in their contrivance, and weak in their execution, but generally mean to do the thing that is right and just, and have always a degree of patriotism or public spirit. In aristocracies, there is more wisdom to be found than in the other frames of government, being composed, or intended to be composed, of the most experienced citizens But there is less honesty in a republic and less strength than in a monarchy. A monarchy is indeed the most powerful of any, all the sinews of government being knit together and united in the hand of the prince. But then there is an imminent danger of his employing that strength to improvident or oppressive purposes. Thus, These three species of government have, all of them, their several perfections and imperfections. Democracies are usually the best calculated to direct the end of a law. Aristocracies, to invent the means by which that end shall be obtained, and monarchies, to carry those means into execution. And the ancients, as was observed, had in general no idea of any other permanent form of government but these three, for though Cicero, declares himself of opinion, esse optime constitutatem republicam, quae ex tribus generibus, illis regali, optimo, e populari, sit modite confusa. Yet Tacitus treats this notion of a mixed government, formed out of them all, and partaking of the advantages of each, as a visionary whim, and one that, if effected, could never be lasting or secure. But happily for us of this island, the British Constitution has long remained, and I trust will long continue, a standing exception to the truth of this observation. For, as with us, the executive power of the laws is lodged in a single person, they have all the advantages of strength and dispatch, that are to be found in the most absolute monarchy, and, as the legislature of the kingdom is entrusted to three distinct powers, entirely independent of each other, first, the king, secondly, the lord spiritual and temporal, which is an aristocratical assembly of persons selected for their piety, their birth, their wisdom, their valour, or their property. And thirdly, the House of Commons, freely chosen by the people from among themselves, which makes it a kind of democracy. As this aggregate body, actuated by different springs, and attentive to different interests, composes the British Parliament, and has the supreme disposal of everything. There can no inconvenience be attempted, by either of the three branches, but will be withstood by one of the other two, each branch being armed with a negative power, sufficient to repel any innovation which it shall think inexpedient or dangerous. Here, then, is lodged the sovereignty of the British Constitution, and lodged as beneficially as possible for society, for in no other shape could we be so certain OF FINDING THE THREE GREAT QUALITIES OF GOVERNMENT SO WELL, AND SO HAPPILY UNITED. IF THE SUPREME POWER WERE LODGED IN ANY ONE OF THE THREE BRANCHES SEPARATELY, WE MUST BE EXPOSED TO THE INCONVENIENCIES OF EITHER ABSOLUTE MONARCHY, ARISTOCRACY, OR DEMOCRACY, AND SO WANT TWO OF THE THREE principal INGREDIENTS OF GOOD POLICY, EITHER VIRTUE, WISDOM, OR POWER. If it were lodged in any two of the branches, for instance, in the King and House of Lords, our laws might be providently made and well executed, but they might not always have the good of the people in view. If lodged in the King and Commons, we should want that circumspection and mediatory caution which the wisdom of the peers is to afford. If the supreme rights of legislature were lodged in the two houses only, and the king had no negative upon their proceedings, they might be tempted to encroach upon the royal prerogative, or perhaps to abolish the kingly office, and thereby weaken, if not totally destroy, the strength of the executive power. But the constitutional government of this island is so admirably tempered and compounded that nothing can endanger or hurt it, but destroying the equilibrium of power between one branch of the legislature and the rest. For if ever it should happen that the independence of any one of the three should be lost, or that it should become subservient to the views of either of the other two, there would soon be an end to our Constitution. The legislature would be changed from that, which was originally set up by the general consent and fundamental act of the society. And such a change, however effected, is, according to Mr. Locke, who perhaps carries his theory too far, at once an entire dissolution of the bands of government, and the people will be reduced to a state of anarchy, with liberty to constitute to themselves a new legislative power." having thus cursorily considered the three usual species of government, and our own singular constitution, selected and compounded from them all, I proceed to observe that, as the power of making laws constitutes the supreme authority, so wherever the supreme authority in any state resides, it is the right of that authority to make laws. That is, in the words of our definition, to prescribe the rule of civil action. And this may be discovered from the very end an institution of civil states. For a state is a collective body, composed of a multitude of individuals, united for their safety and convenience, and intending to act together as one man. If it therefore is to act as one man, it ought to act by one uniform will. But, inasmuch as political communities are made up of many natural persons, each of whom has his particular will and inclination, these several wills cannot by any natural union be joined together, or tempered and disposed into a lasting harmony, so as to constitute and produce that one uniform will of the whole. It can therefore be no otherwise produced, than by a political union, by the consent of all persons to submit to their own private wills, to the will of one man, or of one or more assemblies of men, to whom the supreme authority is entrusted. And this will of that one man, or assemblage of man, is in different states, according to their different constitutions, understood to be law. Thus far, as to the right of the supreme power to make laws. But further, it is its duty likewise. For since the respective members are bound to conform themselves to the will of the State, it is expedient that they receive directions from the State declaratory of that its will. But since it is impossible, in so great a multitude, to give injunctions to every particular man relative to each particular action, Therefore, the State establishes general rules for the perpetual information and direction of all persons in all points, whether of positive or negative duty, and this in order that every man may know what to look upon as his own, what as another's, what absolute and what relative duties are required at his hands, what is to be esteemed honest, dishonest, or indifferent, what degree every man retains of his natural liberty, what he has given up as the price of the benefits of society, and after what manner each person is to moderate the use and exercise of those rights which the state assigns him, in order to promote and secure the public tranquillity. From what has been advanced, the truths of the former branch of our definition is, I trust, sufficiently evident that municipal law is a rule of civil conduct prescribed by the supreme power in a state. I proceed now to the latter branch of it, that it is a rule so prescribed, commanding what is right and prohibiting what is wrong. Now, in order to do this completely, it is first of all necessary that the boundaries of right and wrong be established and ascertained by law. And when this is once done, it will follow, of course, that it is likewise the business of the law, considered as a rule of civil conduct, to enforce these rights and to restrain or redress these wrongs. It remains, therefore, only to consider in what manner the law is said to ascertain the boundaries of right and wrong, and the methods which it takes to command the one and prohibit the other. For this purpose every law may be said to consist of several parts. One, declaratory, whereby the rights to be observed and the wrongs to be eschewed are clearly defined and laid down. Another, directory, whereby the subject is instructed and enjoined to observe those rights and to abstain from the commission of those wrongs. A third, remedial, remedial. Whereby a method is pointed out to recover a man's private rights or redress his private wrongs, to which may be added a fourth, usually termed the sanction or vindicatory branch of the law, whereby it is signified that evil or penalty shall be incurred by such as commit any public wrongs and transgress or neglect their duty. With regard to the first of these, the declaratory part of the municipal law. This depends not so much upon the law of revelation or of nature as upon the wisdom and will of the legislature. This doctrine, which before was slightly touched, deserves a more particular explication. Those rights than which God and nature have established, and are therefore called natural rights, such as our life and liberty, need not the aid of human laws to be more effectually inverted in every man than they are. Neither do they receive any additional strength when declared by the municipal laws to be inviolable. On the contrary, no human legislature has power to abridge or destroy them, unless the owner shall himself commit some act that amounts to a forfeiture. Neither do divine or natural duties, such as, for instance, the worship of God, the maintenance of children, and the like, receive any stronger sanction from being also declared to be duties by the law of the land. The case is the same as to crimes and misdemeanors that are forbidden by the superior laws, and therefore styled mala in se, such as murder, theft, and perjury, which contract no additional turpitude from being declared unlawful by the inferior legislature. For that legislature, in all these cases acts only, as was before observed, in subordination to the great lawgiver, transcribing and publishing his precepts, so that, upon the whole, the declaratory part of the municipal law has no force or operation at all, with regard to actions that are naturally and intrinsically right or wrong. But, with regard to things in themselves indifferent, the case is entirely altered. These become either right or wrong, just or unjust, duties or misdemeanors, according as the municipal legislators sees proper, for promoting the welfare of the society, and more effectually carrying on the purposes of civil life thus our own common law has declared that the goods of the wife do instantly upon marriage become the property and right of the husband and our statute law has declared all monopolies a public offense yet that right and this offense have no foundation in nature but are merely created by the law for the purposes of civil society and sometimes where the thing itself has its rise from the law of nature, the particular circumstance and mode of doing it become right or wrong, as the laws of the land shall direct. Thus, for instance, in civil duties, obedience to superiors is the doctrine of revealed as well as natural religion. But who those superiors shall be, and in what circumstances or to what degrees they shall be obeyed, is the province of human laws to determine. And so, as to injuries or crimes, it must be left to our own legislature to decide in what cases the seizing of another's cattle shall amount to the crime of robbery, and where it shall be a justifiable action, as when a landlord takes them by way of distress for rent. Thus much for the declaratory part of the municipal law and the directory stands much upon the same footing. For this virtually includes the former, the declaration being usually collected from the direction. The law that says, Thou shalt not steal, implies a declaration that stealing is a crime. And we have seen that, in things naturally indifferent, the very essence of right and wrong depend upon the direction of the laws to do or to omit it. The remedial part of a law is so necessary a consequence of the former two, that laws must be very vague and imperfect without it. For, in vain, would rights be declared, in vain directed to be observed, if there were no method of recovering and asserting those rights, when wrongfully withheld or invaded. This is what we mean, properly, when we speak of the protection of the law. When, for instance, the declaratory part of the law has said that the field or inheritance which belonged to Titius's father is vested by his death in Titius, and the directory part has forbidden any one to enter on another's property without the leave of the owner, if Gaius after this will presume to take possession of the land, the remedial part of the law will then interpose its office will make Gaius restore the possession to Titius, and also pay him damages for the invasion. With regard to the sanction of laws, or the evil that may attend the breach of public duties, it is observed that human legislators have for the most part chosen to make the sanction of their laws rather vindicatory than remuneratory, or to consist, rather in punishments, than in actual particular rewards, because in the first part, the quiet enjoyment and protection for all our civil rights and liberties, which are the sure and general consequence of obedience to the municipal law, are in themselves the best and most valuable of all rewards. Because also, were the exercise of every virtue to be enforced by the proposal of particular rewards, it were impossible for any state, to furnish stock enough for so profuse a bounty. And further, because the dread of evil is a much more forcible principle of human actions than the prospect of good, for which reasons, though a prudent bestowing of rewards is sometimes of exquisite use, yet we find that those civil laws which enforce and enjoin our duty do seldom, if ever, propose any privilege or gift to such as obey the law but do constantly come armed with a penalty denounced against transgressors either expressly defining the nature and quantity of the punishment or else leaving it to the discretion of the judges and those who are entrusted with the care of putting the law in execution of all the parts of a law THE MOST EFFECTUAL IS THE VINDICATORY, FOR IT IS BUT LOST LABOR TO SAY, DO THIS, OR AVOID THAT, UNLESS WE ALSO DECLARE, THIS SHALL BE THE CONSEQUENCE OF YOUR NON-COMPLIANCE. WE MUST THEREFORE OBSERVE THAT THE MAIN STRENGTH AND FORCE OF A LAW CONSISTS IN THE PENALTY ANNEXED TO IT. HEREIN IS TO BE FOUND THE PRINCIPAL OBLIGATION OF HUMAN LAWS. End of section 6